Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark. In this episode, I'm really excited to be bringing you my conversation with Yasmin Allen, the girl from Portland who's gone on to break plenty of glass ceilings, particularly in the boardroom, as she now is the chair of the digital skills organization, the Harrison Riddell Foundation, Advance Org, and up until September this year, Fathium AI. She's also a non-executive director of Cochlear, the listed uh, hearing implant company, the ASX itself, Santos, the National Portraits Gallery, and the George Institute. I have an interesting chat with Yasmin about what good governance looks like and what investors should look out for when looking for investment companies to ensure that they in fact have good governance. We also talk with Yasmin at length about what her view of the future of work is. Please remember to keep your feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com and listeners are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoy. Thanks a lot. Yasmin Allen, welcome to Inside the Rope. Hi, David. Yes, thanks for joining us. And I've got to say, I'm a little bit nervous. This is the, you're the first person that I've had in over 100 episodes on the podcast where uh, I've known you through a social setting or met you socially, um, obviously, via your sister, uh, Amanda. Um, so it's nice to have someone on the podcast from that <laughs> angle. And I'm also, the reason I'm a little nervous is, of course, um, whenever I get into a debate with Amanda, um, I'm, I, I always end up on the wrong side of that one. So, if so why, don't worry. <laughs> so um, hopefully, uh, you know, we, we smooth sailing. But um, it was interesting in, in researching you. Um, it's just astounding the breadth of interest and experience you have. And the only other sort of person we've had on the podcast that my mind comes back to is David Kirk. Um, who we, we introduced as a polymath, given all of his different uh, uh, experiences, but he also, uh, you know, in part of his resume, captained the 87 All Blacks. But, but I, I sort of feel that there may be some uh, sporting prowess to yourself that I may uncover during this podcast. <laughs> I don't think so. I, I, do, I do know David Kirk. He's a lovely, lovely man. Mm. Yes. Um, Yasmin, perhaps you could, for our listeners, um, give us a little bit of an introduction to your background and who you are, because I found it very interesting in researching you. Yeah, sure. Um, there is no hidden sporting prowess. I'll say that up front. Um, so grew up in country Victoria, Western Victoria, um, on a farm with horses and sisters and uh, small country town, you know, local primary school, um, you know, lovely upbringing, actually. I think that has given me my sort of sense of who I am. Um, I think it's very grounding to have been brought up in the countryside. And, in fact, I remember speaking to uh, Mike Hawker, who is a former <laughs> Wallaby, as you know, yes. um, when he was CEO of IAG, and we we decided we're on a train. It was when I was on the board of IAG, and we're on a train in Europe somewhere chatting, and we decided that a lot of business leaders have country backgrounds and I'm not sure what that is I, I think you know as a young at a young age I had a lot of responsibility you know driving tractors managing heavy equipment you know animals etc whether that you know causes you to be capable or, or causes a certain confidence or I don't know but I really enjoy the authenticity of country people I think that 
down to earthness and I recognize that and I see that a lot in you know in others in independence and resilience may be some of the byproducts of that mm. um, from a professional standpoint your interests today uh, are quite diverse um, is there any in your mind themes behind that when you know I look at you uh, on the chair of uh, on the board for Santos and Cochlear, um, the chair of Fathom AI, um, a couple of government organizations in the digital space. Is there any themes behind that that you're seeking to build or um, looking to really focus on or have they, how have they come about? Yeah, so certainly the more more recent ones, but I think just stepping back to, you know, my background in investment banking meant that mm. I was advising companies and boards and that I noticed that I really loved the challenge of nutting out those sort of strategic issues and I was very fast to understand, you know, the problems. And I think talking and advising investors, I also really honed that sort of insight into the drivers of corporate value. Um, and... So that took me really in, down the board track. I was invited onto my first board, which in fact was EFIC, Australia's Export Bank. And, you know, I think, I, I don't know, I think maybe that sort of going back to the country, that sort of down-to-earth nature and that, you know, ability to, um, you know, chat with and, and um, understand where management are coming from has really sort of helped me. But then the themes, if you think about sort of themes, I guess really what I've seen in my, so I've been on boards now for quite some time, is the very large, you know, theme, I guess, of the impact of digital. And my background wasn't in digital, so I spent a long time sort of, and we can talk about this, you know, going through if you want, but learning about and understanding the impact of digital. And that led me to then chair things like the Digital Skills Org and Fathom and as wanting to immerse myself in this space. And I, I must admit, I've, those learnings have been very, very helpful, um, pulling them back onto my you know, larger listed boards as well. Um, so I think that's sort of really the theme. And then then leading on from that, from digital is, is our workforces and the future of work and how um, the impact of digital. And, and I saw a couple of years ago, a number of very large companies making very large um, redundancies. And I, I remember actually I was at a dinner um, uh, with a number of other company directors and it was a small dinner and I said that I thought it was the responsibility of, of us as corporates to understand how to transition our workforces and to keep them with us on this journey and and I got slapped down pretty uh, you know hard by the other company directors around the table who said that no you know our, our bottom line was more important that we had to look after our business and I guess it's that you know Milton Freeman um, which I think now most people don't agree with but that that maximizing profit is the number one purpose of, a, of an organization I certainly um, don't agree with that but what I do agree with is that you need to make long-term sustainable returns in order to attract shareholders um, and that means taking into account all your stakeholders from your employees to your you know customer etc um, so I think that led me to really thinking about the future of work and how we transition our workforce and that's why I took on the chair of the Digital Skills Org, which I can talk you know, about if you want. Well, I absolutely do want to get into the sort of digital and future of work. But if I could maybe just back up a little bit and sort of rounding out for the listener where your background and skill set um, originated from and your point. Now, I, I think if I'm right that you started off as a transport analyst in a, at ANZ and also Deutsche and also went to London. Um, 
and I'm also intrigued to understand your your role that you had at Macquarie Specialised Asset Management. What did that entail and what were you doing there and what sort of skills did that set you up with? Yeah, so my background was in investment banking and I, yeah, I was with HSBC in London and really enjoyed my time there. It was when the US banks were coming into the city of London and completely changing the way um, investment banking is, is, you know, is run. And, at, you know, at the time, you know, I was advising Richard Branson, British Airways, um, and they they bought a stake in um, US Air. Um, you know, it was, it was quite an exciting time, actually. Um, and then that brought me back home because ANZ was the lead manager for the float of Qantas. So because I'd done a lot on airlines, I so I came back to Australia to, to well, co-lead manager actually to do that. And that's where I met my husband and kids and blah, blah, blah. So I sort of stayed, stayed here, um, which is great, actually. So I'm so glad I got dragged home because I don't think I ever would have come home <laughs> um, if it wasn't for that. So um, the work at Macquarie Global Infrastructure Fund was as a non-exec. So I joined that board. That was one of my sort of very first boards. If it, as I said earlier, it was my first and then Macquarie Global Infrastructure Fund, and I became chairman of that, and I sat on that for 11 years. But what that, um, you know, it was pretty exciting time then as well, because it was right really at the start of Macquarie Bank really moving into their sort of infrastructure um, strategy. And there was a couple of things that they were doing there that was really smart, you know, obviously bringing in external funding and setting up independent boards, which is why I was there, because the external, you know, funding. But what they understood was across all different infrastructure assets, because we had airports and we had, you know, telecommunication assets and we had even, uh, you know, windmills in France. Um, um, what they understood was that it was really about expertise and about people and how much um, value you could drive by just running these assets more efficiently. So it wasn't about ripping out cost and, and, and skinning them to the bone. It was actually, they bought an organisation called the Portland Group, which was an expert in airports. And then in across a lot of their different funds, they could move these group of air, air, experts around to make sure that they had sort of the best thinking in managing airports, for example. And they did that with utilities as well. And you know, you'd bring some pretty, I remember we were a shareholder in, um, uh, I think it was UK Water, actually, and a very simple change in the way, because obviously in the UK, you know, the copper pipes are really, you know, old, um, well, probably not copper, actually, most of them are probably, um, you know, ceramic. And the way that that company, when it was owned under um, local council, was they used to, um you know, they'd have a list of works and they would go through that list in chronological. You know, if there was a leak, we'd go, you know. But what that meant is they might be pulling up one street one week and then three months later back pulling up the same street because they went through, you know. So we took the simple thing of, of you know, it sounds so obvious now, I can't almost bear to say it, but it added, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds of value. Um, all we did was just change the way we did maintenance of the pipes and it was... Um, based on you know region and where they were and we, we'd wait until there was a bit of maintenance required in you know one street for, and we'd pull up one street every 10 years instead of every three months you know a really basic stuff but that drives value so it does you know I think that also helped me understand the criticality of sort of thinking outside the box too you don't have to be an expert in everything that you do and I think sitting on the board of Santos would be a good example of that I'm not an expert in oil and gas but I know I bring a really strong focus on um um, you know, driving shareholder value, but understanding um, decarbonisation, you know, the future of where fossil fuels are going and really, 
encouraging the management team and the and the board to think a lot about um, how we can see these um, changes in you know and and obviously the push for decarbonisation as an as an opportunity, not not necessarily a threat. You talked about the expertise that you bring to boards, and I'm I'm interested in your thoughts of what investors should look for from a board. What, what sort of things should they, when they're looking at different companies and investments go, ah, I really like that or, or on the flip side, gee, that's a red flag. Well, I think a big red flag is, uh, and you can all read about it now because there's a book on it, is um, Theranos, you know, the blood. Yep, sure. You know, Elizabeth Holmes. And her board was all male, yes. um, all very high, regarded Henry Kissinger, um, you know, very big names, but sort of older, older sort of, sorry? All political and defence establishment. Yeah, and establishment, yeah, that's better than saying male parlance style. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And how long that fraud perpetrated is really quite astounding. In fact, I think they're making a movie of it, and I think it'll be really interesting. And I often think back to that when... um, you know, when you talk to chairman sometimes, oh, we want a name or we want someone who's, you know, done this or done that. And, and you sort of think, you know, wow, what you really need on a board is someone who can think differently and can listen. So I sort of think there's, there's, there's two different ways I look at I look at boards. I think, you know, I, I sort of take the one third, one third, one third, which is, yes, you definitely need deep sector experience on a board, definitely. I mean, I couldn't sit on all of me or a lot of me couldn't sit on the board of Santos, for example. I leverage off the people on that board with deep oil and gas experience. And because they're there, I can push down the capital route or the other things, you know, that I have um, that I have ex- experience on. So definitely one-third deep sector experience. I think one-third sort of broad business acumen and commerciality, um, you know, that have run things and 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 done things and understand, you know, what, what shareholders need and, you know, returns, et cetera. And then one third on sort of future thinking, you know, future skills, whether it be tech, digital, or even just, you know, curiosity and openness to learn. And I think some boards, and I think the regulators push boards into this, fall into the trap of skills matrices, taking us down a narrow path of seeking specific skills, you know, the lawyer, the the accountant, the, you know. And in fact, when I think around the best boards that I've sat on, and I've sat on boards now for around 20 years, is actually attributes rather than skills. So it's openness, constructive comments and ability to listen, um, collaboration, and as I said before, you know, lifetime learning. I mean, the pace of change at the moment because of digital is so fast that if all directors aren't keeping ahead through either expanding their portfolios, like I said earlier, you know, expanded into tech, you know, deliberately um, and don't keep learning, then I think, you know, it doesn't matter how great they were in their executive career, you know, they cannot continue to sit on on boards and actually relate to what the management are going through today if you don't keep yourself up to speed. And you talked about digital there, and that's been a big, strong uh, part of your career now and your focus. Maybe you want to, could you just describe for our listeners what you mean by that and where you see that heading? Um, Digital is everything. It's it's what's driven the last 10 years, since the 13 years since the advent of the iPhone, but it hasn't even started yet. Um, we're, what we're seeing is a convergence of a number of technologies and this conversion has been um, um, amplified by cloud computing and will again by 5G. So these, they, I'm talking um, um, AI, uh, big data, 
uh, machine learning, a whole lot of, um, you know, expertise, if you like, and innovation is being mashed together because of the advent of cloud computing and, and, and um, which is basically what cloud computing has given us is the, the um, propensity to be able to, you know, churn through small for small companies better churn through very very large amounts of data which they couldn't do before there was a moat before when it was the very large you know, had to have big large servers there was a real moat between what large companies could do what small companies could do now startups can do the same thing as IBM and they spin it all up to the cloud and it's really exciting to see that and then as I said we're going to see um, another sort of exponential shift when we get to you know edge computing um, and 5g is really um, um, changing the latency of everything that we do, which will enable autonomous vehicles, um, real-time feedback, feedback loops. Um, um, you know, it's sort of it's sort of almost never ending. I think McKinsey um, said that the next transformation, so the you know industrial revolution, I guess, you know, um, that was what turn of the century, what we're facing now. Um, the fourth industrial revolution will be 300 times as fast and as complex as the industrial revolution. So it is, it is huge and it's a bit mind-boggling when I sort of say all that because, you know, what does that mean? What does that mean? But I guess what we saw in COVID is that the, the businesses that I work with, we brought forward our digital transformation by around five years. So one example maybe is the, um, with Cochlear, is the FDA approved our remote tuning so it's the ability for the external processor to be to, normally you have to go to an audiologist have that yep. tuned yeah um you know obviously in covid people couldn't get to their audiologists and so and we've had that technology now for probably about two years and the fda approved that during as they did a lot of telehealth um as you saw yep. um and that has, has, you know, sort of given this leapfrog, if you like, this five years of acceleration of the digital transformation that we thought we were going to roll out over the next five years is sort of being truncated into, into today. So that's that sort of step change, I that think. Where necessity is the mother of all invention. It's just amazing. We see it in the financial services areas where, you know, even today where, you know, we're dealing with an estate and normally they want to see a wet signature of yeah. the death certificate and the trustees have come back this morning and said, oh, no, no, we can actually deal without that. So all of a sudden it gets expedited for something that used to take two weeks is now done in a day um, and loan applications being done by DocuSign or similar, whereas in the past. So uh, necessity is the mother of all invention. With regard to Coakley, I think that's a interesting discussion um, and it also talks about as we're seeing channel bump and, and what used to be direct and audiologists, I would have imagined were the, the natural distribution point. Are you seeing um, someone like Cochlear thinking about how do they manage their channel and can we deal directly with clients? Because you're seeing many large companies using the data and having the data and able to build a relationship directly with the client rather than their traditional uh, channels. Yeah, well, there's sort of two parts of that. The audiologist is really, really important because, it, it, you know, it's the person who doesn't know, it's it's the older person who's losing their hearing very slowly, who don't really know what's out there. They, they don't come immediately to cochlea um, because you've got this massive big hearing aid market, which is, you know, many, many times the size of cochlea, and they sort of get caught up in that. So the audiologist is there sort of trusted advisor, if you like. Mm. But what we want to do is actually get closer to the audiologist and help them in their business. We actually bought a small 
uh, business in the US to test if we could help audiologists run their businesses more effectively and then to help them refer when an audio graph or map shows that someone is in the um, area of deafness that is actually um, cannot be helped anymore by a hearing aid, that they do refer them um, on to us because, you know, these people, as we've seen, tend to get caught up in the sort of, oh, we'll just get a higher powered hearing aid. But in fact, if you've lost your hearing, turning it up higher, you know, is never going to, is never going to help. Um, and so we actually want to get closer to the audiologist in many respects to help them, you know, get these people off their books, if you like, because they can't help them because they're, you know, deaf and move them on to us. But then the other thing that we want to do is through our online store and through our, our direct to customer is to, again, help that audiologist. They don't want to be selling their parts, if you like, the, the spare battery, the cords, the cables, the other things that go with. That's not really where they're going to make their money. You know, they make their money selling hearing aids or referring or, you know, so we have set up an online store so people again it's better for the customer it gets them out of the audiologist practice when they're not there for you know hearing reasons um and and it gives us you know much much a, a better relationship and, and better data so there's a sort of a win-win there so it's not about cutting out the audiologist it's about working with them to you know they're experts in deciding who needs a cochlear implant mm -hmm. um and we're you know experts in building and providing um the the technology but it may be a scenario thinking about this where you have such data and information about the client or the end user and some smarts via um, big data or something where you can actually come back and provide some insight to the audiologist to help improve their position. Um, while we're talking about cochlea, um, if I'm right, the market for, you know, we're all getting older and the amount of over 70 year olds in the world is much larger. And I don't think cochlear um, service the over 70s. Is that something that's on the cards or can you see that happening in the future? Oh, um, yeah, I guess in Australia, cochlear is well known as, you know, helping children hear because that's what, where we started and that's what we did for many times, you know, many, many years. But mm. actually our largest growth area is in the ageing population because of demographics and because most children are now very well, um, you know, looked after. We have uh, newborn hearing screening. So in most countries, most certainly all, you know, Western countries and certainly we've had it for a long time in Australia. And that means the children automatically go into that pathway and get a cochlear implant. So we've spent a lot of time um, and we have a lot of, you know, customers in that ageing demographic. As I said earlier, that is not a sort of straight line. It's not as easy as a hearing, you know, like with the children, it's straight in, you know. And, of course, there's a lot of research that shows, says that a child who, who um, you know, gets a cochlear implant can have just a completely normal schooling and, you know, the earlier they get it, the better for language development, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not a straight line um, for the ageing population. So we're doing a lot of work. Um, you know, we've got professors all around the world and, you know, a lot of sort of external people doing work around healthy ageing. And it's so important when you age to be able to socialise. It's something I think we've learned through COVID that socialisation is very, very important. And if you can't hear your grandchildren and your family, you are very much, you know, um, on the outer of society. In fact, I saw something the other day, someone had lost their so it was on a documentary and I pricked up my ears because it was nothing to do with cochlear. But he said, this person said, I would prefer to lose my sight than my hearing because if I lose my hearing, I can't, you know, so I can't, I can't communicate at all. Um, and I just thought that was such an interesting and, you know, quite profound. And I think that's what we're sort of seeing with our, 
you know, customers that are in that in that demographic that it's so important for them. You know, the difference between, and we get a lot of, you know, testimonials, obviously, and the difference between an older person who, you know, playing with their grandchildren and um, even continuing to work, you know, people don't always lose their hearing in their sort of 70s and 80s. You know, we've, we've, I met someone actually up in Brisbane only a few months ago who lost his hearing, you know, in his sort of 40s and he couldn't work. You know, it's devastating not to be able to work, just, you know, not only economically but socially. And he's now, you know, um, really enjoying, actually was a fantastic person, really enjoying his, his work time and his social time. And he's got, you know, young kids that, he's, that are still at school. So, you know, he, he definitely wanted to keep, you know. So I think it's, 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 it's a big part of our, our push and our, our future growth will be into this ageing demographic. Yes, perhaps we could change gears here a little bit and talk about the future of work. Um, you mentioned that it's one of your passions and one of your interests. And, and I was really uh, chuffed to see this week that one of my mates who started Fathom, Greg Miller, better <laughs> known to me, my mates is Ozzy Gerg, um, given his American background, um, who's a mean volleyball player, by the way, and, and in general, always good at a party. Um, you're the chair of Fathom, which has just been acquired. Um, mm -hmm. Perhaps you could talk about that company, what it does, and also talk about your view of what the future of work looks like and what people can expect. Well, it was at that same dinner that I talked about earlier where I got slapped down by the other company directors that when I said I thought it was the corporate responsibility, Mike Prittis, the founder with Greg, the co-founder, um, was at that dinner and he said to me, well, you think quite differently to most company directors um, because I was thinking, you know, next horizon. And... Um, uh, you know, so he, you know, so I started sort of, you know, finding out a bit more about Fathom. And I have to say, it, it sort of fitted exactly, I'd been saying for quite some time, you know, it's our responsibility, you know, impact of digital, and, you know, um, we, we need to transition our workforce. And by the way, it's not only the right thing to do, but it's the economic thing to do, because we keep our people with us, you know, that's, you know, blah, blah. But Mike says it in a much better way. And he, you know, his whole company is built around that premise. And he's um, obviously much smarter than I am. And he's, um, um, set it up so that basically Fathom is a platform company, a, a SaaS company, so a, um, software as a service. So um, it takes its clients, it APIs, its clients' um, workforce data, not, not private data, but, you know. Um, 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 work functions and roles. Yeah, roles and, and work titles, et cetera. APIs that onto the platform and then overlays that data with, the Fathom data, which is the predictive data of what the impact of technology on your sector. And then the company itself gets a, um, a rather nice dashboard that it can, and I've sat on that dashboard and I've done, you know, I've asked it different questions. So for example, UK Bank, I said to Mike, well, what's going to happen to the females in UK Bank um, as a result of the impact of, of technology on that sector? So he, you know, shifts the um, dial across and we, you know, asked it that question and basically 60% of their females were going to lose their jobs. Now, I think that is information that the board would want to know. I think that this dashboard should be in every boardroom. I think we should be understanding not only the impact of technology on our sector for, our, for strategic regions, reasons, but also the impact of technology on our people because you might want to keep those people, you, there, might, there may be, and I think there is, a lot of advantage to having a diverse workforce. But if the impact of technology means you're going to lose 60% of your women, and you know that today, then you can do something about that. 
you can either retrain those women or you can um, change the way you bring in technology. Or there's many, many, you know, different, you know, strategic solutions, I guess. But um, it's, you know, it's it's knowing up front the impact is, is, I think, the most important thing in terms of understanding how to, you know, respond not until waiting. And I think so many companies just wait till after the event. You know, I think we're seeing that in, in you know, fossil fuels and, you know, all sorts of things. And um, so I got pretty excited about Fathom. Anyway, you know, fast forward, um, they needed to raise their first Series A capital. And so Mike asked me to chair that. And we brought in a small board and we did a, a, a capital raise, um, which was great. We brought in a, a strategic shareholder, which is Pearson PLC, education company out of the UK, and a number of, you know, high net worths. And two years later, um, you know, I think the future of work now is bang smack in the, you know, it's sort of been exponential. Now people talk about it every day as if, you know, no one would smack me down in a dinner full of, you know, company directors today when I talk about that. But, you know, that was only a couple of years ago. So um, uh, anyway, you know, we went through a process and uh, we've yeah, just sold the company to Pearson. And what I think is really exciting about that were two things, I think. You know, Mike and Greg have, have, have set up an incredible company with incredible purpose and the 60 employees there and the fact that Pearson is going to or have set up their workforce division, so a whole new division to accelerate their own growth and Fathom is that division. So the entire company will stay together and I think that's except the board, of course, you know, I'll, I'll chop off or something else, that's all right. Um, but the whole company will stay together and continue to do, you know, what they do. And then the second great thing about it is... Um, you know, they're going to have a much a parent with much deeper pockets, so they'll be able to really make a global impact. Um, and I think that's really important too because um, both Mike and Greg are very, very ambitious, as they should be, because there's a lot more to do in this space. You know, it hasn't even really started. Um, and so I think it's fabulous that um, Pearson, being an education company, has seen that this is a potential growth as well back into their traditional business because what Fathom does is um, identify the problem but the tools to, to solve that problem still exist elsewhere. And if you are transitioning your workforce, you need micro-credentialing, you need all sorts of, you know, um, education tools, and Pearson is the supplier of those. And so I think it really makes a lot of sense to put those two, those two companies together, and I wish them really well for the future. It's uh, nice to hear that uh, when, when you have great success and do a great job you actually do yourself out of a job and you're very accepting of that <laughs> it's fantastic you mentioned then that things have changed a lot and you wouldn't be shouted down for the future of work do you think COVID's played a role in changing those attitudes and are there any other roles or things that you've learned during this COVID time yeah look I think COVID definitely has because of the acceleration as I said before you know we've slingshot in mm. five years you know forward and um, I think, you know, that's led to a shortage of skills. And so, you know, a couple of years ago, we were talking about, um, you know, unemployment and masses of people out of work and, you know, and yet now we have a shortage. You know, we're at full employment pretty much in most, you know, Western countries and we have a massive shortage in these digital skills and we really need them and we can't produce them fast enough. So, you know, out of our traditional, you know, universities, so what we need to do is transition our workforces. And I think a lot of companies are now starting to think, and I can tell because of the customer base of Fathom, in fact, um, you know, I would say the large progressive companies in Australia are all customers of Fathom. Um, and then globally as well. In fact, we've got Fathom has faster growth in 
in Europe and the US, and particularly in Europe, even during COVID when Mike and Greg couldn't travel, um, we were growing faster in Europe because I think they cottoned on to the importance of their workforces much earlier than the Australian management teams have and boards have. It's interesting in some of those changes of COVID, there was a recent Wall Street uh, Journal article about how particularly in New York, there were sort of middle technology finance workers uh, finding out ways to work remotely and work two jobs, two full-time jobs at the one time. There's actually websites set up uh, enabling them to do them. So uh, we'll see if uh, working from home or if, if that enables that to any degree, um, but interesting. Um, yes, that's been really, really helpful. Um, actually, I, I, before we, uh, sort of sum up and sign off, I'd be interested in talking about the ASX um, and the move to blockchain there. What, what, how is that project going and, and how do you see that playing out? Yeah, so just as I talked about the sort of 21st century, you know, infrastructure um, globally around, you know, 5G and um, AI, et cetera, um, blockchain is a really important part of that. It is... Um, the future infrastructure, I think it's going to be just as important as, as the internet, in fact. I mean, I think it's going to be huge. And so when the ASX looked at replacing its post-trade settlement system, Chess, um, Chess 20 years ago was ahead of its time. You know, the Australian market was one of the first to dematerialise, I think it was the first to dematerialise. So we were already, you know, 20 years ahead. And then 20 years later, replacing Chess with sort of just another um, enterprise technology didn't seem like the right way to stay ahead of the curve. And so the CEO at the time sent around a couple of um, his execs around the world to have a look at this blockchain technology and really assess whether this was something that we could um, invest in and, and you know, whether it was made sense for the ASX. They came back, um, short story, long story, whatever, <laughs> um, and, and decided that it was, and the board signed off on that and we started building a blockchain replacement for our post-trade settlement system. So at its, um, at its you know, most basic, it is just a replacement of chess. That is what it will do. And that's the reason we are doing it. You know, we are the, the you know, exchange in Australia with a critical infrastructure. So we will do that in a way that is safe and secure and reliable. Um, and then though, because it is blockchain, there's a whole lot of other things that will be able to be on top of that so basically it will be a platform like the way i talked about platform economics of fathom whereby you know you ingest the data etc the asx blockchain will be the same so other external parties will be able to come and build um financial products and and systems on our blockchain and i think that will be now that's probably still some quite some time away um but i think that will will be sort of exponential in terms of the um uh, impact on the Australian financial sector. And it may not necessarily be, I mean, you look at trading a share, um, the cost of the exchange is about, I think, 9% when you talk about, you know, when you look at the entire cost of registries and all the other, you know, um, intermediaries that sit in between the sort of issuers of capital and the providers of capital or the companies and the investors. Mm. Um, the exchange is only sort of 9% of that cost in the middle. And so all of those other players, those other intermediaries, can come onto the blockchain and reduce their costs significantly. So they can rebuild their back office, you know, on, on top of the blockchain. And basically, when you see that happen in any industry, when you see significant costs come out of any industry, you see massive 
uptake in you know innovation but also customer service and new products because you know you've got a completely different way of doing business and so I think you know in the next sort of 10 years I'm talking you know I said I'm an over the horizon thinker in the next 10 years there's going to be quite a different um not necessarily a different exchange but a different financial infrastructure in Australia and where many many players will come in and and play on that infrastructure well I think it's uh, uh pretty pretty much due and I think my uh 20 year old Joshua who you know who uh edits this show and um uh, is second year unit economics and, and has just sort of started putting some spare money aside and buying some shares with total, he was totally perplexed coming to me and saying, uh, Dad, Dad, what are these letters that they're sending me in the post and the share registry settlement statements? And what am I supposed to do with these? Because he'd set up his account, he'd done everything, even his job, his super, his bank accounts, everything is done from his mobile phone. And he, he yeah. just couldn't for the life of him know what he was supposed to be doing with these envelopes turning up in the post. So, yeah, yes. well, all of that. I mean, there is a, uh, you know, the HIN, which is the yep. you know, identification number that um, that's what he's being sent, uh, is yep. really important because that does have proof of ownership. But you're right, that will be dematerialised. That will be all on, won't be sending out letters. It will be, but the, the, the validity of his ownership is really still really important. And that's why the blockchain is so such um, an important technology, because as we've seen in, in other countries, you know, where there's, there's no um, proof of ownership of land, for example, in some countries, you know, because there's no um, sort of legal system or, that, or, you know, that paperwork has all, you know, been, you know, destroyed. Um, it's very, very important that you have that security of ownership and that legality of ownership. And so, you know, the exchange provides that, but we're going to provide that in a way that, yeah, hopefully one day it will be on your mobile phone. Yasmin, thank you very much. It's been really insightful and enjoyable. Uh, thanks for joining us in Inside the Road. No problems at all. Good to be here. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.